most of the Timorese young people are unemployed. So they do need this opportunity to come to Australia and to work and then better their life. I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre, a podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the story of the people, policies and politics of international aid. Type international development projects or aid into a Google Images search and you'll find a whole mosaic of different pictures, graphs, and logos. Everything from a woman laboring in a field to some charts depicting peaks and troughs of annual aid budgets to inevitably some pictures of bureaucrats and politicians exultant after signing yet another memorandum of understanding. What one will not find is a picture of midfield meats a meat processing facility in a place called Warrnambool, a big country town in Victoria that is three hours west of Melbourne, and the site of an Aid for Migration program, or in lay terms, an Aid for Trade program, called the Pacific Labour Scheme. This scheme helps employers in rural and regional Australia fill gaps in their rosters by hiring people from nine Pacific Island nations and Timor-Leste. All those who are working on the Pacific Labour Scheme get Australian pay rates and are entitled to stay in Australia for three years. Midfields is one of the 50-odd companies that participates in the scheme and they've drawn their workers from Timor-Leste. But the East Timorese join a truly international workforce, people from all around the world who have come to work at Midfields on a multitude of different visa types. Another scheme, which is kind of a sister scheme, is the Seasonal Workers, which enables people from the same countries to come to Australia for shorter stints to work in fruit picking, horticulture and the like. And the Pacific Labour Scheme and the Seasonal Workers program are very different in forms of approach to many development projects. For a start, they take place within Australia rather than abroad, and they are self-directed in terms of economic development. The money that the individual earns, he or she can do with as they wish. The Development Policy Centre have been conducting research on Pacific labour mobility since 2015. And the more producer Julia and I read their research and thought about what a fundamentally different approach to development it was, the more we wanted to go and see for ourselves. So a few weeks back, we met in Melbourne Airport, we hired a car, we plugged in Julia's hyper-millennial playlist that she described to me as Japanese jungle meets house, but what to me sounded like I'd been imprisoned in a malarial dream, and we headed for Warrnambool. As we drove, we questioned what the scheme would look like in practice. Does it work? What does labour inside an abattoir look like? Who are the workers that come to Australia to participate? What are their circumstances? What are their stories? All of which came under the broader question of, 
Is it a good scheme and can it be improved? We ended up gathering so much media material in our three or four days there that we wanted to properly flesh it out. So we've sliced this final topic of this season into two cuts. The first episode is about the Pacific Labour Scheme itself and the jobs that come with it. Next episode will focus on the lives of the workers, their contributions to the Warrnambool community and the impact of the scheme on their lives. We are aware that Midfields has recently been in the news for reported incidents of mistreatment towards its Chinese workers, as well as broader issues that are to do with hiring migrant labour. While this podcast looks into the gruelling nature of work inside an abattoir, our focus was on the work and life conditions of East Timorese and Pacific Island workers under the Pacific Labour Scheme, in a bid to understand one of Australia's more unusual aid projects. You'll hear from a number of different migrant workers in this episode and next, as well as Midfield Meets Management. And we began inside the Midfield headquarters, where we met Mick Williams and Alistair Sharp, part of the management team. They briefed us and they gave us a set of clothes and equipment to put on before we could begin a tour of the facility. Our outfits consisted of head-to-toe personal protective equipment, gum boots, white overalls, a high-vis vest, a net for my beard, a hard hat, earplugs, and a mask that made us sound a little like muffled Darth Vader's when we spoke through it. So, suitably attired, clutching our recording devices, it was time to head in. Been to an avatar before? I haven't been to an avatar before. What have I signed up for? <laughs> the eye opener for you. When we go into the production areas, we have to wash our boots. It's 82 degree water, and then we'll have to wash hands with soap and hand wash. So I don't know what you're going to do with your equipment. My first thought when we entered the meatworks was just the sheer scale of the operation and the constant quick-motion nature of its many moving parts. The animals were hooked to pulleys from the ceiling like suits in a dry cleaners, and each minute or so they'd be conveyed on from one worker to the next. Each worker was armed with various cleavers and chainsaw-like implements that were used to cut at the animals who were already in various stages of undress. It was exhausting simply watching these workers at their tasks. How many people would you have in here at the one time? Or at the moment? On this floor, so this floor is a beef boning room. We have down a boning area, slicing table, and then up above us we've got a packaging area. 130 people in here at the moment. And what cuts are they doing? Yeah, so every, every primal cut on a beef body, so all our top sides, outsides, rumps, porterhouse, scotch fillets, yeah. What's this guy doing? He's denuding the cuts of meat, so he takes all the silver skin and the fat off the meat. Yeah. Oh, I see. It's a huge operation. 
all the meat processed is is halal certified. We have a halal program where we have approved slaughtermen. They uh, they do the slaughter, and then we have a process where they uh, they follow the animals through and. Thankfully, we didn't have to follow the animal all the way through and watch it become deceased. For us, it was just dead, becoming deader. Wow. Oh my gosh. There's a cow right in front of me that's still got its head on and it's being skinned as we speak. This is very confronting. Sort of manoeuvring my way around, trying not to get dropped on by blood from these carcasses. I think I'm talking about 60, 70, 80 maybe cars in various states of dismemberment. It's quite slippery actually walking around in these parts. What struck us was just how vigilant the workers had to be at all times. They were constantly on their toes and had to be on the ball. One lapse in concentration and the consequences could be really, really dangerous in a place where there's five million knife cuts a day. And while we were ducking and weaving our way through carcasses that were coming at us from left and right and balancing emotions of shock and awe, we managed to get in a couple of conversations with some of the East Timorese workers here. In the interests of acoustics and of their time on the shift, we kept these conversations brief catching up for a proper chat, away from the noise, once they had clocked off. Nice to meet you too. Julia. Yeah. Uh, Gordon. All right. And Mike. Bon I think who you know. Dieg, Dieg. Midfield's number one cleaner. I'm a team worker. Yeah, I'm a team worker. Who's the Dili? Mike Bubonaro. Yeah. My name is Pedro Lai. I'm from East Timor. And I live in Dili, as you know, the capital of East Timor. But I was born in Bobonar, near to the border. I'm here for nearly two years, I think. This August will be two years. I'm here at the moment I'm working at the midfield abattoir as a cleaner. It's a little bit different, like a normal cleaning, because there's a kill floor, they have a packaging line, and they also have a boning line. So in the different department, we have a different type of challenge to clean. When you do the cleaning in the kill floor, is a little bit harder than uh, other departments because when they kill and they open up all the stomach and everything, like a blood or the inside of the animal, everything, so you have to clean that. And it makes it quite slippery as well when you've got all these stomach parts yeah. and other bits of fat yeah. floating around on the floor. And you've got pig carcasses flying wow. around the room, you've got a yeah. dodge. So did you find that confronting when you first started working there? Had you seen the inside of an abattoir before working at Midfields? Yes, but not that many at the same time. Like first time when I start, I have a like imagination the what kind of abattoir is gonna be like I talk like they're gonna put the animal on the table, so they cut it, and then that's what I'm thinking. But when I come here, like you see the carcass just flying on top of your head, and just you have to walk under the carcass to clean up and everything. Oh my God, what I'm doing here! Like it's just so confusing because it's very dangerous. Also, sometimes because um, I seen 
carcass that not been hooked well just fell nearly hit the people who's working so they always tell us to just to be careful that's, that's why i think maybe you see in some part there is uh, still a lot of the fat just build up because we cannot go clean when the production is still on like we have to wait when the, all the carcass passed and the line is empty just go and have a clean do you have anything like this back in Timor-Leste? No, no, no. We don't have anything like this before. When I see the size of the animal that's been slaughtered, I said, oh my God, how can we do that? Is that can we kill that many in uh, a day? I said, just too many for us, you know. How many? At the moment, we kill over 800 in a day. Beef, cow, or bull. But in the lamp, they kill oh, 6,000 6, a day. <laughs> lamp. We never see the animal being slaughtered that many in our life. Never. I never seen that before in my country. So in our country, if someone want to have a, a lamb or a cow or beef, we just can do it ourselves. Maybe kill one and it will do for nearly a village of people. They can come and buy it. So in Timor, normally when we slaughter, beef or cow is when we have some celebration. If uh, one of a member of the family die or or wedding, but like not every day we slaughter animal, no. This one here is different. How can they eat so many meat? <laughs> Pedro is one of the oldest of the East Timorese working at Midfields. He turned 40 the weekend we were there. And this is not his first rodeo when it comes to this line of work. Prior to Warrnambool, he spent time in Northern Ireland, home to one of the largest expatriate East Timorese communities in the world, the majority of whom work there also in meat processing. And Pedro is one of a very diverse group of 30 East Timorese workers that are working at Midfields that includes a vet, a cocktail maker, and a civil engineer. One of Pedro's younger colleagues on the production line is Vincente Pinto, who, believe it or not, used to work on the other side of development aid early in his career. He worked at the Japanese embassy in Dili. My English name is Vinny, and then I, I'm from a district called Vikeke, and my village is called um, Bikari. First, I came to work here under the seasonal workers program and after two seasons there was a offer from Pacific Labor Scheme to come and work at Midfield in Warnable and I was so interested because I could experience in terms of uh, chopping meat. Did you have any experience in chopping meat before? No I didn't at all I, but I did have people chopping the meat in my country but they use very traditional way to kill the animals there. So you got on the plane from Delhi to Darwin and then you came to Victoria um, and then you arrived in Warrnambool. What was the first couple of weeks like? What were you doing? Were you being trained in how to work at the meatworks? Yeah. So when I first came here, we had a uh, induction. So we were introduced how to sharp a knife and also how to maintain the hyacinth while working at midfield. Yeah, so I was assigned as a slicer. So I was slicing cows and bulls. And after that, I got trained to 
used to machine called Denuda. So I'm now as a Denuda boy. I think the work as I am experiencing right now, it's a tough, tough job, tough work. Because we need to lift the heavy things every day, especially my job. I need to lift up the meat on the top every day, like 40 or 50 kilograms every day. It's very, very hard, very heavy. <laughs> and then they're busy too because yeah. they... It's moving all the time. Yeah, yes, they move, yeah, they hook it very fast. So we need to be quicker and then strong all the time. And we need to stand still for eight hours or nine hours. So we need to be fit and we need to be smart and consistent. Especially the machine that I'm using, yeah. the new the machine, it's very dangerous if you lose control or lose concentration. So it's very important to keep yourself focused. It's also an, a language thing. I mean, your English is perfect, but English is not your lianina, not your mother you're tongue. Right, you're right. Um, exactly. It's just that's an extra complication because you're having to think sort in another right. language all the time, and that's tiring. You know, you're working with the different countries and different people. They can speak English, but English with their accent. So it's very difficult for me to understand when I'm busy working. So if he or she tells me to do something, I better stop and ask for the clear information yeah. before I start. We got the supervisor who can speak in a loud voice. But the thing that I'm afraid of is sometimes we can't hear because we need to wear earplugs or earphones. So sometimes we get confused to follow what they're saying. We'll go into the wash washroom where it's a bit okay. easier to get. Oh, yeah. Tara Sheena. Hello. Hello, hey, how are you? Tara. Hello, nice to meet you. Can, can we have a little talk with you? Yeah. Okay. I've been, I prefer English, got here. Ah. When I met Terezinha first, she was lugging a lamb that was barely lighter than her own body weight across the room. Terezinha is one of a handful of women in the East Timorese contingent, and she told me that one of the big challenges in her interview was convincing her would-be employers that she could handle all this heavy lifting. So be so tall, So the difficult work? Lie. Lie? Lie. Yeah. So they say the work is very hard for you, for the woman. So they see me because I'm the skinny one. I, they see me that I don't have energy to work, and that they say that maybe you keep you for the next season, or maybe you can work on the farm or hospitality. Yeah. I said no, I can do. Don't see me like that. I can do the job because in Timor, I work for the gas for the cooking. The bottle I can carry yeah. it's a 45 kilogram. I do. That's why I say now I can do. So they allow me to come in, and they see I can walk. And when you came here and you went to the factory for the first time, what did you think? I just think it's hard job, but I just think the positive for myself because I need it. All the, my friends and all the girls, they say it's a really hard job. So I tell them, in Timor, they're doing interview. They already tell you how to job. 
how it's hard in here. They already told you, they already saw you the video, everything. So you knew what the factory was going to look like before you came here? Yeah, because they already tell everything to us. So you decided when you signed the paper. The thing when I was there yesterday was surprised me was how many people were there. And everything was going so fast. Yeah, very fast. A hundred books for one minute. Sometimes it's the machine broken, so my line is so busy. Sometimes I was I wanna cry, you know. Because all the boxes sometimes they didn't pack really good. So I have to carry by myself, it's very heavy. Sometimes it's 27, 25 kilo. One day I tell the supervisor, I want to go home. I don't want to more here. It's too heavy for me because if they're broken in there, yeah. I have to carry all the boxes. It's very heavy for me. And then the supervisor said, no, you are strong. They will make you strong. It's okay. You can carry that. So I just think, oh, yeah, because I need it. Yeah. I need the money, so I have to work. It's hard yakka on the factory floor, and it's a different form of hard work for the midfield staff. The paperwork obligations of the Pacific Labour Scheme could go toe-to-toe with any international development project. And it's not just that particular scheme that midfields are grappling with. Hiring workers from all over the world on different visa types requires resilience and dexterity. It has not been without its complications, and there must be days when the boning room looks easy by comparison. After our tour, we went with Alistair to meet Dean McKenna, general manager of Midfield Meets. To hire foreigners, it's a very big task, very costly task, and that cost comes out of uh, remuneration for the whole group because we expect to make a profit. If we don't make a profit, nobody gets paid. So the more added cost and time and bureaucracy around these processes, it's just, it's unnecessary cost. And uh, there needs to be boundaries, there needs to be rules, and they need to be adhered to, but they do need to be streamlined and a lot quicker, as Alistair uh, can attest to. Getting the PLS workers into Australia is quite problematic for a business. So we initially sent our HR manager to Timor Leste to interview each of the individuals. We hand we handpick these people because in the past we've had some um, uncomfortable experiences where his employees being misrepresented to us. Just filling out paperwork, receiving through the PLS system, and that that in itself was a full time job, getting the workers out here. So yes, there is, there is a lot of work involved, a lot more than uh, employing a local Aussie worker, as you'd say. Yeah. That, that's that's hard, but when they get here, the work really kicks in because it's critically important to us that all our employees come to work in a uh, fit and proper state. And to do that, especially with our migrant workers, we uh, we need to support them in the community. So in saying that, uh, we need to ensure that they have adequate housing, um, comfortable housing, that the community groups that, that may apply to them, be it churches or sporting clubs or religious um, faiths, we like to uh, ensure that they know, you know, where they are, what's available to them, so that outside the gates or outside the factory floor, they've actually got a life. Because if they're not happy outside the gates, they'll never be happy inside the gates. And how much of this is kind of above and beyond what your contractual responsibilities are within the Pacific Labour Scheme? I'd like to say none of it is, because uh, we should be expected to do that. Like these people living in a foreign place, different cultures, different ways of living. 
and uh, it's the companies, be it this company or other companies, if we take on the task of bringing workers into this business, we should be expected to look after them. So contractually, you know, no doubt we don't have to do that, but um, we, we don't look at it like that. There are four national flags that fly outside the Midfields factory. As well as the Southern Cross, there are three that have the predominant colour of red, of China, Vietnam and Timor-Leste. And if Dean and the Midfields team were to fly the national colours of all the workers here, the flag parade would look like the front entrance to the United Nations. Among some of the other nationalities on the factory floor are Ni Vanuatu, Filipinos, Indonesians, Fijians, Sudanese, South Koreans, Taiwanese. And Alistair and Dean are running a workplace with multiple cultures, each with different ways of communicating and different understandings and experience of workplace hierarchies and practices. And like all workplaces, not everyone's going to get along all the time. That's particularly problematic when there are knives around. And to work within such a workforce requires what in bureaucratic speak would be parsed as diplomatic acumen and adroit cross-cultural communication skills. It's very hard for certain cultures to get them to speak up. They think they're complaining. They're not. We, if we don't know the issues, we can't address the issues. And uh, they seem to be too, if anything, especially Timor Leste people, too respectful of management. It'd be good if they spoke up more. Do you have an example of, of something that for them seems like an affront on management? Yeah, not, uh, not understanding their pay rates. And then uh, rather than ask a question, they have a meeting amongst themselves and they, uh, they're all leaving town. We get wind of it, we sort that out. During COVID, there was a lot of misunderstanding there. They're worried about having to do certain things like wear PPE that they'd have to pay for it, which was never the case. Even to the point we actually closed down for three days uh, voluntarily during COVID because we were worried about an uh, outbreak here. We paid everyone, including our migrant workers. We didn't have to. And then they felt that we were trying to bribe them. Many of us who have made our home in Australia are from somewhere else way back when. But for the East Timorese in Warrnambool and the 2,500 others working in the Pacific Labour Scheme throughout Australia... There is no pathway to permanency. It's three years, that's your lot. Thanks very much. Cheerio. And we'll talk about whether some in the scheme want to stay in the next episode. But for employers like Midfields, this hard three-year cap creates a practical problem. Meat processing facilities need supervisors and managers who understand the many moving parts of the assembly line. But there's no point in promoting workers from the Pacific Labour Scheme. It's a band-aid, and that's all it is. But sooner or later, we need to tear this band-aid off because we have these people here for three years. We are restricted to how we can uh, promote them or elevate them through the business because knowing if they're two years in and they've become very competent, they, they become competent very quickly through the training programs and through their endeavour because they want to learn, which is good. Then we're two years in, it's absolutely pointless from business decision promoting these people because 12 months down the track we lose them. So going forwards, there needs to be a pathway to permanent uh, residency for these people if they qualify because 
they put three years into this business. This business puts back into the community. So these people are entitled to become a part of this community and they do add a lot to this area. More broadly on the concept of international development, which is that we're bringing you to Australia and we're assisting you by giving you an opportunity and you can then send that money home. If you flip that paradigm, is there benefits for you as a company in this? You know, Does it open up opportunities for you to expand your market overseas Huge. as well? Huge. So we, uh, we've had, and it's exciting, we've had uh, migrant workers in the business for about 15 years coming in the business under these type of arrangements. There's plenty of former employees that now buy meat offers or leather, hides and skins, milk powder, these sort of things, because a lot, uh, especially from the Asian countries, you know, they came here with a degree or whatever that may be. They come here and worked and understood it. One guy come here, he was an engineer. He went back home, he works for a manufacturing company, and we, uh, we have a relationship with him today selling skins. And uh, so it's two-way street, and it's... The people that come here and work with us, a lot of the time, most of the time, they're more worldly than uh, 99% of the people within this business. I put on Twitter the picture of the um, Tim Rees flag and I had one of those Tim Rees ministers like saw it. He said, oh, I said, where are you? And I said, I'm in Warrnambool. And he said, that's the first place I went to in out of metropolitan Australia. And they've got a Timor Street, but they don't call it Timor. They call it Time. Time War. <laughs> So if you had a blank sheet of paper, you know, you, what would you do with it? Would you tear it up? Would you sort of go to Timor-Leste yourself and find people and give them visas? Like, what would you, what would you do? We, um, we wouldn't tear up the Pacific scheme. We wouldn't tear it, but we would add a couple of chapters to it, meaning give these people some long-term hope, not three years of hope, that's just a honeymoon. They need long-term vision, long-term hope, as we do. And uh, it would make our business more sustainable, their lives more sustainable, and it's, it's a win-win for all. And a big concern for us being midfield and the greater meat industry going forwards and farming community is succession. So we cannot reinvest in these businesses to the level we do on an ongoing basis if we don't know where our human capital is going to come from. That is the most important part of these businesses is the people we employ. And we, we need them here long term because what they learn, our best supervisors, as you met them on the floor, all of those supervisors have come through the floor. They've swept the floor, they've used a knife, they've worked in quality, and then we add the training to them, which is the HR elements, business management, conflict uh, resolution skills and all this. We can't bring someone in with a university degree to run these floors because, as you've seen, there's so many moving parts I think on day shift here alone, there's three and a half million knife cuts a shift, then night shift kicks in. So you're talking anywhere from three to five million knife cuts a day. We have to do it safely, we have to do it efficiently, and we have to do it profitably. Peer behind any bureaucratic curtain and you will always discover a more interesting, complex, and human reality. And it felt just the same after our trip behind the clanking wrought iron gates of the meatworks to meet some of the participants and the employers in the Pacific Labour Scheme. Look at the framing of this scheme and it often feels like us helping them. And there's some element of truth to that. But there's also more to it than this. Companies like Midfields couldn't thrive without migrant labour. And if Dean is anything to go by, 
there is an appetite for trying to expand the scheme to consider letting more workers in and offering more than the three years that's on the table. In the next episode, we ask if the benefits of having migrant workers in rural Australian towns extends beyond the workplace. So join us in a couple of weeks as we celebrate Pedro's birthday, cheer from the sidelines during a Timor-Leste versus Vietnam soccer match, dial into phone calls back home, visit a remarkable Fijian woman called Anna, and see how the money being earned in midfields is being spent in so many different ways. And we'll also give one of the East Timorese workers a voice recorder so that he can go find answers to a question that he, and I dare say anyone who is not an academic or an aid wonk, has always been pondering. After you get the result from the, your survey, what do you plan to do? What you will be doing? This is Memorandum of Understanding. I'm Gordon Peake. The producer is Julia Bergen. Music is from Luther Knut. And special thanks to Dr. Michael Rose from the Development Policy Centre for all his work introducing us to the many arms of the Pacific Labour Scheme in Warrnambool. You can find some more information on Pacific Labour Mobility, including some blogs written by Mike and other members of the Warrnambool community, in our show notes. We go to air every fortnight and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback and always appreciate it when you leave us a review or a rating. Follow us on Twitter at MOU underscore pod. See you in a couple of weeks for the final episode of this first series of Memorandum of Understanding. Bye-bye.